presidents, and stop me if you've heard this, make sure their and their party's policies are carried out in large measure by whom they appoint. Each time, though, it seems like the confirmation process goes slower and slower. For a look at how things stand now for the Biden administration, we turn to someone who counts these things, and Joseph O'Connell, a Stanford Law School professor and a member of the Administrative Conference of the United States, and she joins me now. Ms. O'Connell, good to have you on. Thanks for having me. All right, so let's talk about the long-term trends here, and you see comparisons and numbers to date counts for different administrations going back many years. Is it, in fact, actually getting longer, more dragged out and slower? Yes, it is, both on the nomination side and on the confirmation side, if you look from President Reagan all the way through to President Biden. Got it. And the Plum Book is actually expanded a little bit, too, in that period of time. Yes, there was an effort by Congress in 2012 to cut Senate confirmation from about 170 positions. And so that helped for a bit. But Congress has also added positions that require Senate confirmation. And beyond the Senate confirmed, then it becomes the administration's problem to nominate people for the appointed but not Senate confirmed. There's about a couple thousand of those, right? Yes, that's right. So there's about, give or take, 1,200 Senate confirmed jobs and several thousand below that that are also political slots that don't require Senate confirmation. All right. And so where does the Biden administration stand at this point? relative to where it should be and relative to, say, Trump and Obama and Bush at the same period? So the benchmark is critical. So if you compare to President Trump at the one year or the 13 month mark, President Biden was doing better than President Trump in terms of number of nominations for these key agency jobs. But of course, I don't think that President Trump should be the benchmark. So you could look to President Obama, but President Obama was also quite slow. And President Obama had a higher percentage of his nominees were confirmed. He had more nominees submitted to the Senate than President Biden. So President Biden is slow and it's in part on the White House and it's in part on the Senate. Could one of the reasons be here, and I was just looking at this nomination that crashed and burned of Sarah Raskin for the federal banking regulation job, and you could say that some of her views were a little bit far even for Democrats to accept. And this is not just a Biden administration phenomenon, but I remember as far back as Carter even, I remember, nominating just among the nominees people that were way out of what even a friendly Senate could accept, which we found in this case. Could it be that the more presidents do that, the more suspicious the Senate gets about the rest of the nominees that might be totally normal? So I think there could be an argument that when the rules changed in the Senate in November of 2013 from requiring 60 votes for a nomination to get to a confirmation vote to a majority, that the White House when putting forward nominees, cared less about consensus across the aisle because you needed at least 60 votes. I don't know if that's true, because if you look at the 130 recorded votes since the start of the Biden administration, a majority of them have more than 60 affirmative votes. So I think even those nominees that get to a recorded vote and the number of recorded votes is increasing, you're still seeing support across the aisle. It is a tough Senate. You can't lose one vote. 
if you have no Republicans on board. Now, there have been several nominations that have gone through because there was some loss of Democratic votes, but there were some Republican votes to get the necessary majority. Right. So the habit of every president to nominate people that are sort of out there isn't really a bearing factor in all of this. I think that's right. And I think that part of the delay actually may be which I think is a worthwhile source of delay, is that this administration is trying to diversify who's in charge of our federal agencies. And we see some remarkable statistics about who's coming into federal agency leadership. And if these are people who have not been the classic in and outers in Hugh Hecklow's terms, it takes longer to find those people. It takes longer to vet those people. But then you have a much more diverse, much more interesting leadership for the federal government. We're speaking with Ann Joseph O'Connell. She's a Stanford Law School professor and a senior fellow of the Administrative Conference of the United States. And this diversity issue gets to another kind of human capital cost of accepting nomination to a federal job. I've seen the forms, and the higher you go, the more you literally need a law firm to be able to look into your affairs, to be able to be worthy of this. And people may be totally worthy, but nevertheless, you have these forms and so forth. Has that gotten worse over the years and the fact that it just takes so long that people don't want to bother, and therefore it's harder to find people willing to do this? I think it's gotten worse in the sense that people's financial lives have become more complicated and the forms require a lot of information. The key is that it hasn't gotten better. And the 2012 Act that cut Senate confirmation from about 170 positions established a working group to streamline the paperwork process. And the working group, bipartisan, came up with a set of really impressive recommendations. And sadly, since that report was issued in November of 2012, almost nothing's been implemented. Right. Well, that kind of happens a lot in Washington, doesn't it, with reports with lots of recommendations. And a moment ago, you mentioned that the benchmark of the Trump administration relative to Biden is probably not a good benchmark. Is that because as a total outsider relative to other politicians that have come into the job, even other Republicans, that maybe no more people that are likely to be confirmed and know their way around Washington relative to what the Trump team might have been aware of getting to Washington? I don't think it was who was in the pool. I think it was that President Trump came in and noticed two things for him. The first thing that he noticed is he thought that there were a lot of political appointments. He thought there were too many political appointments. He viewed some of them as unnecessary, and he announced publicly that he wasn't going to fill them. And the second thing for President Trump, as he said, he loved his actings, right, under the Federal Vacancies Reform Act of 1998. In a lot of agencies, though not all agencies, like the Merit System Protection Board, but in many agencies, President Trump could use acting officials for long periods of time in place of Senate-confirmed ones. Of course, that might be easier and smoother to do, but does it really get your agenda accomplished? Well, President Trump believed that he had more sway over his actings than over his confirmed appointees. Now, of course, he may have had more sway 
over his acting Secretary of Homeland Security, for example. But I think acting officials have less sway over the people beneath them. So if you're thinking about policy implementation, I do think having Senate-confirmed officials allows you to push your policy agenda farther. And just analyzing where the Biden administration does stand at this point, how many openings roughly are there? So the Washington Post and the Partnership for Public Service run an appointee tracker. They do this in all administrations. They're tracking about 800 Senate confirmed slots. So not all of them, but the ones they think are the most relevant. And of those approximately 800 slots, President Biden has slightly over 300 confirmed He has over 180 nominations either pending with the Senate or announced and not yet sent to the Senate. He's using about 190 term or holdover appointees. And what does this mean? This means that there's still about 120 jobs out of the 800 that are being tracked that lack even an announced nominee. And this is as of mid-March. Got it. Then if you look at it in those terms... It seems like a really heavy lift for an administration. And this was a well-prepared administration. They had their teams in and you knew they had their policy priorities lined up, you know, the day before the inauguration. Remember those stacks of executive orders? They just didn't get written that morning, you know, while everybody was getting dressed for breakfast. So it's a little surprising that they weren't more together on these 800. So I think there are several factors at play. I mean, the first is the election and the certification of the election. So it took the General Services Administration several weeks to certify the election for President Biden. That meant that money vetting was slowed down. I think the delays are more than the three weeks. Second, there has been some reports about issues with regard to the presidential personnel office and some tension within that office. The director of presidential personnel has left. There's a new director of presidential personnel. And then third, although not spoken in the same way as President Trump, but the President Biden's team also knew the value of acting officials. So on day one, I wrote for the Brookings Institution, they had unconfirmed completely legal under the Federal Vacancies Reform Act, people in various what are known as first assistant slots in federal agencies. And under the Vacancies Act, it allowed those first assistants to be the acting official while the appointments process churned. So while there may be these big gaps in confirmed leadership, there are people carrying out the functions of those jobs largely. I call those the PTDOs, performing the duties of. Exactly. Well, let's hope they have good fidelity to what they're supposed to be doing because they've got a lot of work and a lot of influence. And Joseph O'Connell is a Stanford Law School professor and a senior fellow of the Administrative Conference of the United States among other things. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access 
to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was a leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have 
ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we meet our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, And that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, And it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Want more ways to show your good side to the world? Donate plasma at a Griffles Center and join thousands of donors who are helping to save lives. Receive up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at grifflesplasma.com. Hey, hon, what you doing with your fun? Do flowers have best friends? I don't know. Hey, look. Whoa. Some answers can only be found in nature. Discover the unsearchable. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a trail near you. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council.